Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It seems like it's been quite a while since I was on the air last, but since the time I was on the air last, I was able to have enough time to prepare for what we have in store for tonight, but I also had the chance to um, venture out and visit a uh, significant uh, historic place that uh, is known to many, not only in Virginia, but perhaps to um, a fair number of people outside the state of Virginia, but it's a unique hidden gem that is very well worth visiting. It's called Agecroft Hall. It turns out that this was a um, castle that originally stood in uh, Lancashire, England, for uh, many of centuries. Uh, its earliest origins date back to uh, between the 14th and 15th century, during the time of the uh, Tudor and Stuart uh, dynasties. But by the time uh, the early to mid-1920s arrived, uh, the castle itself was in such a bad state of disarray that it was, that it was basically on the brink of uh, no longer uh, being considered uh, salvageable. So long story short, a fellow by the name of Mr. Uh, T.C. Williams and for those of you who are University of Richmond uh, graduates, whether you are an undergrad or law school graduate, or just very familiar with the Commonwealth of Virginia in general, Mr. T.C. Williams uh, was a very well-to-do uh, businessman, and uh, ultimately the University of Richmond uh, named uh, their law school in his honor. Mr. T.C. Williams went about making a bold uh, investment in buying Agecroft Hall, but the thing is, is that this castle had to be taken down piece by piece, and it was crated and shipped 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean from England to Virginia, and it took about two years' worth of uh, reconstruction at a cost of 250000 which was a lot of money in the 1920s. I don't know what it would be in today's time, but it would be a lot more uh, money, perhaps uh, somewhere in the millions, but it took about two years to recreate um, the um, setting of what it had uh, been like from uh, previous centuries before. But nonetheless, uh, it was a great time uh, yesterday at Agecroft Hall. My wife and I hadn't been back there in um, oh, probably about five or six years, but this was the first time we got to go at uh, Christmas time, and we got to s learn about how uh, Christmas traditions were uh, conducted during the um, 15th, 16th, and uh, 17th centuries. We also got to learn about uh, Christmas uh, during the 1940s as... Um, well, she originally was uh, Mrs. T.C. Williams, uh, but she, her husband, her first husband being T.C. Williams, uh, passed away, and she uh, remarried and married uh, Dr. William Morton. So uh, Ms. Dr. and Mrs. Morton uh, hosted um, Christmas parties during the time of the World, uh, Second World War at uh, Agecroft Hall. And so we got to learn about uh, what Christmas, what the Christmas party of 1942 was all about. So if you ever are in... Um, if you ever uh, plan on visiting Agecroft Hall, regardless of the season, it's very well worth visiting. So, uh, nonetheless, it was uh, great to be there yesterday. Now, um, I, I should say that we have a lot to cover, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with the time that I had off and uh, leading up to tonight's um, podcast segment. I, um, I prepared uh, very well because uh, we do have a lot to cover, and in this uh, podcast segment, uh, we're going to be learning about how Massachusetts was the first of the 13 colonies to take the lead in um, 
going about uh, pursuing privateering, not just so much pursuing it, but, but by making it a law. And, of course, we have to think to ourselves now, how could Massachusetts go about making this a law when Britain's subjects below are not even their own independent uh, entities, or let alone sovereign, sovereign, um, sovereign nations, or <laughs> let alone sovereign states? Of course, if I tell you too much of that now, what would be the point in even having um, a further uh, discussion on this? But that is something we will uh, definitely be learning about as to how uh, Massachusetts went about uh, pursuing uh, pursuing legislation geared towards uh, pri privateering. So uh, let's be prepared for um, learning everything there is that's uh, relevant. Uh, but then again, regardless of... Uh, topic series uh, that we've discussed in terms of uh, podcast uh, book topic uh, discussions. I think it's fair to say we have come away learning something relevant uh, per each um, ep per each topic. Uh, so I, I thank you all for being such ardent listeners. So our first uh, leadoff question for uh, this uh, podcast segment to Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan is the following. Was the Continental Congress ready to sever all ties with England, even as the first shots got fired on April the 19th, 1775, at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. Do you really think that all 13 colonies were ready to sever ties just yet? Now, of course, we do have some regional issues in Massachusetts, but it would be fair to say that... Um, that colonies well south of Massachusetts, even middle colonies like Pennsylvania and Delaware, they aren't all gung-ho on this notion of independence. So the answer is an obvious no. It would be, um, it would be very fair to say that any issue or just issues in general surrounding the matter over complete separation from England was met with uh, division and even what we know in today's uh, phrase or terminology, uh, partisanship. We do have to keep in mind, folks, that when the uh, delegates um, came to Philadelphia in September of 1774, when they met uh, for the first uh, Continental Congress, they were all getting to know each other. And I can tell you this much, even um, Samuel Adams of Massachusetts had been warned by um, some of his own brethren from within the inner circle, probably um, like John Hancock, who obviously is a very well-to-do merchant. Yes, Samuel Adams is an ardent patriot, and he truly does believe that it's just a matter of time before the colonies will separate altogether. They will band altogether and um, sever their ties with England. But even Samuel Adams himself has been reminded that, look, you can share... You can express your um, your opposition towards everything that's that, that you feel is unjust and unfair, but you also have to be very careful how far you go with um, with your views. In other words, you're going to be meeting other people from different colonies as far south as South Carolina, um, halfway such as you know Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey where there is still a strong uh, base of loyalists who still are um, clinging on to their allegiance to the crown and don't want to, se don't want to sever their ties with the mother country for, 
for a variety of reasons, most notably economic uh, purposes. So we just have to keep in mind that just because a Continental Congress met in 1774, and while, yes, they did agree on some uh, very important um, stuff, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that here shortly, while, yes, they did agree on some stuff, they also, um, it was not an all-out declaration for um, complete separation from England. So so what kind of measures would have uh, come into place that many of the delegates, if not if not many, how about all, uh, agreed to, even if there was some skepticism? How about that olive branch petition? I'm sure many of you... Um, have heard of the infamous olive branch petition but if some of you haven't heard that phrase i will be more than happy to share to share it with you all the olive branch petition basically was a measure implemented by um, moderate delegates those uh, moderate delegates um, were those who um, they weren't for complete separation but at the same time they were hoping that some compromises could be made to where past grievances would get resolved and everything would go back to what it was um, prior to uh, hostilities breaking out during the Seven Years' War and hostilities that occurred uh, following the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. So this Olive Branch petition, when I think of uh, delegates in Philadelphia and the First uh, Continental Congress who um, came up with the Olive Branch Petition, I think of um, men like uh, John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. He was one of the most ardent uh, supporters behind the uh, Olive Branch Petition. So basically this measure is one that seeks reconciliation with the crown, being King George III. This moderate uh, faction or group urged George III to revoke all laws they deemed unfair which had resulted into the current state of disarray regarding Britain's relationship with her subjects, being the 13 colonies. So when I think of laws that are um, unfair, I mean, one that could come to mind is the Stamp Act from 1765, but we also have to keep in mind that that, that piece of legislation didn't last very long on the books. Parliament actually figured it out that it was uh, an unfair piece of legislation, so while they repealed the Stamp Act in March of 1766, and while, yes, that did give um, the colonists a lot of reasons to celebrate, it was met by another piece of um, legislation, being the uh, Townshend Acts, which had placed uh, duties on lead, paint, paper, glass, and the infamous tea. Well, the colonists were very hostile about the Townshend Acts. So what did Parliament do? They uh, repealed everything except the tea. And, of course, the tea itself is still a, um, a sensitive issue as we go into the 1770s. So, yes, some of those pieces of legislation um, were uh, seen as unfair, but, of course, they were repealed. One that would have come to my mind that was not uh, repealed was the Quartering Act from 1770, that required uh, the residents of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, or the people of uh, Massachusetts, most notably in Boston, to have to be forced to uh, provide lodging for British troops into their homes. But, of course, this, uh, this was a violation of um, proper consent. 
you know, it's one thing to have soldiers from a um, sovereign nation coming 3,000 miles across the ocean to restore peace, but now all of a sudden the people are being forced to uh, house the soldiers. Uh, that is definitely um, improper uh, consent. So these, this, these are just some uh, scenarios here of what the uh, moderate delegates felt had been improper um, legislation that they felt was unfair, and they were hoping that with the repeal of other pieces of legislation that we could eventually have a um, restored relationship that was um, much better in uh, previous times. This uh, petition, uh, Olive Branch petition, it's a well-intended document. Sadly, though, <laughs> well, for starters, uh, the colonists, or the delegates, rather, they um, sent the Olive Branch petition um, via mail. <laughs> we don't, you know, there's no such thing as two or three day uh, express mail, so it's going to take uh, maybe a couple of months before it, it actually gets to the uh, desk of King George III. But historians do know that once that petition did reach uh, the, the doors of Parliament, King George III never even bothered to read the document. So, yes, the, the colonists, or we should say the delegates in Congress, had some very nice intentions, but this would be an example of being able to convince someone to change their mind until the other party was blue in the face. So the delegates in Philadelphia knew that other options could not be ignored. Well, one option would be going to war, but going to war really ought to be a last resort. How so? Well, if, if you go to war, you better make sure that you've tried every other option available before declaring war, or let alone declaring, separate, declaring your... Um, how do I say it? Let me rephrase it. It's one thing to declare war, but you better have tried every other oper every other measure on the table before resorting to something that would no longer that would result in complete severing of all ties. So yes, one option is war, but it, but before war itself could could break out, how about establishing a proper means of uh, defensive strategies? In other words build fortified walls, build um, better defensive systems that might uh, keep the enemy from uh, inflicting a, a surprise attack on, on a um, coastal uh, town's inner harbors. It would be fair to say that you should not put all your eggs into one basket. Have plans for both combat and reconciliation against the mother country, being England. So, so the bottom line is, okay, yes, you're not happy, but at the same time, should you go as far as declaring war on England? Should you go as far as declaring your separation? If you do declare separation, who's to say that whatever new government you create will be better than the one that you're currently living under? See, those are just some of the dilemmas that, that the uh, delegates in Philadelphia are um, having to take on, and they are met with support and opposition. Why did Massachusetts take the lead initiative behind restoring, or rather I should say behind resorting to privateering? 
Well, for starters, the colony itself had earned a reputation of being an unpleasant thorn under Britain's domain during the post-Seven Years' War era. And, and definitely so. And the, from the time that the uh, French and Indian War ended in 1763, Massachusetts was leading the way towards resistance, um, especially under the infamous Stamp and Townshend Acts, to the um, infamous 1770 Boston Massacre that was a result of uh, Briti the presence of British troops over a two-year span. And, you know, we all would like to think that the uh, people of Boston were being subjected against their own will to unfair treatment. And while, the yes, that is partially true, we do have to keep in mind that even the people of Boston were just as guilty of causing problems to the soldiers as the soldiers were to uh, many of the uh, people inhabiting the town of Boston. So yes, you have the infamous March 5th uh, Boston, uh, seven, you have the infamous Boston Massacre from March 5th the 17th of 1770, and of course we do need to be reminded that the massacre was not a one-night incident. Uh, there were plenty of other um, incidents that led up to the um, final uh, straw that broke the camel's back, uh, resulting in the uh, deaths of uh, five um, civilians uh, who were not innocent civilians, but uh, protesters. Then you have the dumping of roughly 340 chests of tea, which was nearly 90,000 pounds worth into Boston Harbor, being the Boston Tea Party of December 16, 1773. Secondly, uh, Parliament's uh, passage of the uh, Coercive Acts, or what we like to think of as the Intolerable Acts in 1774, that led to, a result, that led to the result of uh, closing the, the Port of Boston under the Boston Port Act, that led to the closure of Boston's port, where all ships coming in and out were relocated north to Salem, shutting down the, to the town's economy. We'll talk a little bit more about that here uh, shortly. But these are some of the events right here that ultimately led Mass the men of Massachusetts or leaders of Massachusetts to want to take matters into their own hands, uh, events themselves galvanizing these men to want to go a little bit further in protecting their uh, civil uh, liberties. Then uh, we have come July 1st of 1775, the New England Trade and Fisheries Act, which went into effect. This curtailed trading practices where trade itself became further complicated with England, Ireland, and the British West Indies to forbidding colonists from fishing anywhere along the North Atlantic Ocean. So if you can't fish along the North Atlantic Ocean, and we're not talking just for recreational purposes, folks, if Parliament now has restricted the um, trading practices, including, um, being a, including one's right to fish for business purposes, then how are uh, people going to be able to uh, sustain a, a fundamental living? Because it's one thing to catch a lot of cod, but are you consuming all that cod on for your own behalf? You might consume some of it, but the majority of that cod is being salted and preserved and being sent um, to the Caribbean, the West Indies, for economical purposes. So when you uh, restrict uh, one's means of... Um, of uh, fishing for cod, you are pretty much um, clamping down on their business to where you could almost force um, a business into complete financial ruin. 
the people of Massachusetts turned um, to privateering because of their of their strong ties with the ocean or the sea. Yes. Is it fair to say that Massachusetts has a lot of port towns, Boston being one of them? Yes. So, yes, the people of Massachusetts are turning to privateering because of their strong ties with the ocean. And like townspeople in the heart of Boston, mariners themselves were passionate about defending their freedoms against unjust, or I should say unfair, rule. The Massachusetts coast is home to ports big and small, whose ships focus their energies on fishing and commerce. Boat building in Massachusetts alone employed thousands of men. And we're not just talking about um, wood, uh, those whom, um, who take wood and, um, and, and uh, make it into barrels. You know, the Coopersmiths, we've got the people who are caulkers. We've got people who, um, who specialize in cordage, uh, rope making. So if it's one thing to work on to work in the um, shipping industry but we're not talking about a few hundred people folks we're talking about thousands of people up and down the Massachusetts coastline whose uh, livelihoods um, whose livelihoods are dependent upon this line of work because without without this line of work and without any goods coming in and out of the harbor then how can any of these people make a living so, let's go back to 1774 with that infamous uh, Boston Port Act that Parliament um, enacted. It did more than just close Boston's port. The act itself destroyed thousands of people's livelihoods. Remember I just mentioned that a minute ago? Where Bostonians not only were out of work, they faced food shortages Okay, folks, remember, we don't have grocery stores to go to. We don't have Instacart. We don't have, like, Kroger Clicklist that we can just uh, select a bunch of items and have someone come bring them to our homes. We don't have any of this stuff. And because the port has now been relocated to Salem, you know, we don't have cars. So it's not like we could just hop in our car and drive an hour north of Salem and go pick up uh, essentials that'll get us through the week. We don't have any of this now. So with the, uh, the port being relocated, thousands of people are out of work, and food is now becoming scarce to where you have uh, food shortages. The crisis becomes so bad where other colonies banded together. Now this is where I call, this is where I can say acts of kindness come into place. Now, yes, some colonies may not agree with, the, with how the people of Massachusetts have been behaving, especially in terms of their defiance. But what really um, hits many, uh, many delegates very hard, even as far south as Charleston, South Carolina, the South Carolinians are coming to the realization that, hey, look, if Parliament can close down the port of Boston... There's a greater, there's a good likelihood that they could decide out of nowhere to close the port of Charleston, which is the number one port in the southern colonies, I should say. So if Charleston, South Carolina gets closed, then that uh, pretty much uh, shuts down, um, that eliminates many uh, people's uh, economic livelihoods for the port of Charleston. So basically, anybody who is working along the coast 
in a uh, mercantile co economy or, or an economy that is dependent upon goods coming in and out of their harbors, they know now that anybody is fair game. So because Parliament has closed the port of Boston, the colonies do band together by um, sending essentials up north to Massachusetts, where her people could get by on modified terms. The closure of Boston's port marked the first beginnings behind bringing delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies together come early September 1774. Wait a minute, I thought, you know, for the longest time, I thought all the colonies came together, even in the First Continental, Continental Congress. But um, I have to tell you all something. One colony didn't send delegates, and that was Georgia. Well, what's going on with Georgia? Well, Georgia, the reason for why Georgia didn't send delegates to the First Continental Congress because the colony itself was involved in a conflict with the Creek Indian Nation, which required assistance from, from the Crown and Parliament. So if they are in the middle of uh, fighting, a, um, fighting what you call battles with the Creek Indian Nation, what are the people of Georgia going to need in terms of uh, defensive uh, protection? Well, they're going to need um, muskets. Probably rifles. They're going to need all kinds of uh, ammunition to defend themselves against uh, Indian raids. So if you want to uh, have uh, protection from the crown, then you better uh, be respectful towards the crown so that you don't burn any bridges. So Georgia will eventually join folks, but uh, it will have to take a fellow by the name of uh, Mr. Lyman Hall from Georgia, whom will finally uh, break the ice and get Georgia involved to where it becomes a unified front. The primary accomplishment behind the First Continental Congress pertained to reaching a unanimous agreement on boycotting all British goods. When you boycott something, that means you no longer are in favor of uh, something or being a, a policy or uh, rules. Uh, because uh, Parliament uh, has failed to um, you know, rescind or repeal those intolerable acts, especially with the port closure in Boston. Now the, uh, the delegates in Philadelphia agreed unanimously to boycott all British goods that would go into, into effect starting December 1st of 1774, unless Parliament was willing to repeal the intolerable, a.k.a. coercive acts. The agreement was better known as the Non-Importation Agreement, all goods coming in from England to colonial America. So in other words, let's let's try to do without uh, goods from England. Yes, we could be in a bind where it could impact us negatively, but let's try coming up with some alternative um, goods. In other words, if we have access to spinning wheels, let's uh, let's manufacture um, textile uh, goods here domestically rather than having to worry about getting them abroad being sent 3,000 miles across the ocean. I use textile as an example because uh, in, in London, for one, there's bigger population in London, and two, you're going to have a great number of textile mills where uh, clothing and fabric can be uh, produced on a mass scale, and so therefore it's cheaper to um, make those goods in England than have uh, people in America in colonial America doing it because simply the populations 
per most cities are not the same as they are in London, England. The largest city in colonial America going in, leading up to and right around the time of 1776 is Philadelphia. She has uh, probably at least, what, 40,000 uh, people uh, living in, the, in, uh, in that city. Now, besides implementing a non-importation agreement, the First Continental Congress uh, created the Continental Army on June the 14th of 1775, three days before the Battle of Bunker Hill, commenced on June the 17th. June the 14th, 1775, saw George Washington be elected commander of the Continental Army. Of course, little did anybody up in Bunker Hill, outside of Boston, know that the Continental Congress has already selected a permanent commander. The guy who's uh, running the show up in um, Massachusetts at Bunker Hill is a fellow by the name of Dr. Joseph Warren, one of the uh, revolution's uh, forgotten heroes. If you read the book Founding Martyr, uh, The Life and uh, Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, uh, The American Revolution's Forgotten Hero by Christian de Spigna, it's a phenomenal read. Uh, as a matter of fact, for those of you who were with me uh, about two years ago, uh, we did a pod- I did a podcast series on that one. So for those of you who would like to learn more about Dr. Joseph Warren, not only read that book, but listen in to the uh, podcast series as well. So yes, uh, July 8th of us, uh, so we know that uh, George Washington um, was named uh, commander of the Continental Army on uh, June the 14th of 1775, and come July 8th of 1775, Congress sought um, peace by sending the Olive Branch petition to George the, to George III. A lot is going on. We're still holding out for the hopes that there could be some form of reconciliation, but little do most people know, including the delegates from Philadelphia, some may know, like John and Samuel Adams, John Hancock, especially the, uh, the Northerners, even those from uh, New Hampshire, like Josiah Bartlett, for, uh, for example, um, even, uh, say, an Oliver Wolcott from Connecticut. The, the New Englanders know that, um, that it's just a short matter of time before everybody's going to come to their senses and realize that this Olive Branch petition is not um, worth uh, seeking out anymore. Okay, what is impressment? I know we talked about this uh, from the uh, prologue, but it's going to be talked about even more. Well, if you forgot what impressment was about, I'll tell it to you again. Impressment is the action of forcing men into a military or naval force by serving on the side of the enemy against their own will. The British Royal Navy first began practicing impressment in the year 1664, almost 60 years after the English established their first uh, settlement in present-day Jamestown, Virginia. The impressment of crewmen on board American ships taken captive by British forces created further tensions between Britain and her subjects being the 13 colonies prior to the Revolutionary War breaking out. Now, I had no idea that, you know, here uh, Britain has subjects below whom are whom I always thought were looking after her, even, most notably, even during the French and Indian War. But I had no idea that Britain, uh, even before the French and Indian War, that Britain was also engaged in 
in the activity of impressment against her own peoples, being those of the uh, 13 colonies. Could it be fair to say that there were some reasons for it? Sure, but it just seemed very odd. But sometimes when reading stuff like this, you know, we do have to be um, taken by surprise and realize that not everything's always cozy or uh, rosy as we would like for it to be. The Declaration of Independence comprised of 27 total grievances. 27 is a pretty big number. Of course, the most common grievance would be uh, King George's um, taxing the uh, colonists without our consent, or as Jefferson phrased it, he has taxed us without our consent, or he has imposed taxes on us without our consent. But grievance number 26 addressed uh, George III's use of seizing subjects, vessels, and crew without proper and formal consent, including the denunciation of how American crewmen were treated in times of peace. During years leading up to the war, the British Royal Navy had deliberately forced American sailors off their ships and onto British boats. Impressment alone allowed Britain to remain afloat as being superior along the Atlantic Ocean's waters, long-term. It might be fair to say that without turning to impressment, even if it meant impressing her own subjects, Britain's Royal, Royal Navy would have uh, become weakened, not just short-term, but long-term. Hard to believe, to say the least, but uh, there again, it might be fair to say, given that how, given just how big of a thorn Massachusetts had been to uh, England, maybe it's fair to say that England, the, the English Navy needed to treat, needed to uh, teach her subjects a lesson on what happens when they uh, test the uh, crown's uh, waters to a point where um, stiff consequences have to come into place. It doesn't make it right that uh, people are involved, but. It's fair to say that these kinds of practices have happened for quite some time. Had Massachusetts become a consistent target of impressment attacks, including history of severe hostilities, uh, the answer would be yes to both. There was an incident that occurred um, on April the 22nd of 1769, uh, one year before the infamous Boston Massacre happened, it involved a two-masted square-rigged ship, being that of a brig called the Pit Packet. The Pit Packet was coming home to Marblehead with a load of salt from Cadiz, Spain. The Pit Packet got confronted by British frigate HMS Rose, a sailing warship whom sought to search the Pit Packet for illegally purchased goods. Okay. Now, what kind of evidence, I mean, what kind of probable cause, rather, should I say, would the commander and his crew of the HMS Rose truly um, be led to believe that something suspicious in terms of illegal contrabands even aboard the pit packet? But it turns out that the actual mission was not about trying to determine whether the goods were valid it was really about seizing the crew of the pit packet impressment four irishmen whom called marblehead their home took matters by going as far as arming themselves and this is in quotations folks a fish gig 
and a fish gig is a multi-pronged spear used for fishing purposes. They also armed themselves with a harpoon, a musket, and axe. Michael Corbett, who was one of the four Irishmen, dumped a line of salt across the pit packet deck. He threatened the British officer as to what would happen should impressment arise. In other words, if you try to touch me and my other three fellow um, comrades, there's going to be, um, there could be bloodshed. Well, the British officer came over the line. He, ste he stepped over his uh, boundaries, folks. He, he came over the line where Michael Corbett attacked him with the harpoon. And this man, the attack was so vicious, folks, that it led to a brief fight resulting in the four Irishmen being taken prisoners. The British officer that was struck by the harpoon died as a result of bleeding to death. I, I, it's one thing to be, a, a, you know, maybe get whacked in the face with by someone else's fist, but to be attacked by a harpoon... I always thought getting um, attacked with a bayonet was deadly, given that's 18 inches long. That is pretty deadly, but to be attacked by a harpoon and die from bleeding to death, that's a, that's a very agonizing way to go. Well, who defends the four um, Irishmen aboard the uh, pit packet in court? How about Mr. John Adams? who would go on to be uh, one of um, our famous uh, forefathers, uh, who was on that committee of five that, um, that helped um, that he and um, Mr. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the author of the Declaration of Independence, you know, Mr. Benjamin Franklin, Mr. Um, Robert Livingston, Mr. Roger Sherman, that uh, elite committee of five. John Adams has become quite the lawyer, folks. He's very well knowledgeable in so many uh, fields. And we have to keep in mind that uh, lawyers in the uh, in the 18th century, they had to be, um, they just couldn't focus on one or two areas like lawyers can do today. Of course, when you go to law school, you learn about everything there is because you never know what you might be specializing in in terms of uh, law practice. But for John Adams, it was a requirement to learn everything, and not just learn everything, but to be able to be as knowledgeable in every uh, field of law as there was possible, because he never he never knew what could uh, come up, but he needed to have knowledge about it. So the bottom line is John Adams uh, defends these uh, men in court whom were charged with murder and piracy. Adams felt the commander of the HMS Rose should have been held accountable for allowing or let alone encouraging improper activities along the seas, all in the name of achieving superiority while making her subjects below feel inferior. In other words, you know, if you're going to, um, for John Adams, he just doesn't, he can't figure out why England is doing what it's doing and that they are engaging in these improper activities that are making their subjects, whom are supposed to be, there ha there needs to be a uh, proper um, relationship between the crown and the subjects. Even if there are disputes, they need to be resolved peacefully without going to violence. But at the same time, John Adams also knows that if one party feels as though they are being threatened and they have tried to get the other party to to not cross the line, 
maybe John Adams is trying to say that maybe those whom are being threatened do have a right to stand their own ground as long as they as long as they go about exercising the best uh, proper uh, judgment. In other words, don't just uh, take out your rifle and say, present arms, make ready, take aim, fire. But if you feel threatened after being knocked to the ground, being um, assaulted, I mean, there has to come a line where you have to ask yourself, uh, how much more can I take? And so for John Adams, he could be building a case possibly as to did these did the accused have a right to to uh, defend themselves even if it had resulted in violence that led to the uh, death of the uh, British officer who was uh, harpooned? So for John Adams in the end did prevail. He got the charges of murder and piracy dropped against the um, the four accused men aboard the pit packet. His argument did focus upon self-defense to where he proved that the accused had every right in defending themselves against improper search and seizure to standing their own ground against unfair practice of impressment. Think about it. The British didn't have um, any uh, probable uh, cause to um, go aboard and search a vessel claiming that there was, um, what do you call it, to, cl to claim that there was illegal uh, goods. Even if the goods were illegal, um, do they have the proper means to go about arresting everybody on board? Well, that could be a whole other topic for discussion, but the bottom line is that the troops, not the troops, but in this case, uh, the sailors or the crewmen aboard the vessel, Pitt Packet, did have a right to defend themselves. So um, when did the uh, first uh, talks of privateering take place in Massachusetts? Uh, we got to go to the summer of 1775 for that. So the summer of 1775 saw large numbers of men in Massachusetts take their case for privateering from the colony uh, legislature to the general court. Multiple committees debated the use of privateers, but no immediate action got taken. It had to take a man by the name of William Tudor, judge advocate. A judge advocate is a commissioned officer. In this case, William Tudor was a um, commissioned officer of the Continental Army and a one-time clerk in John Adams's law office. Good connections there. For uh, William Tudor, he fought tirelessly to persuade the general court into authorizing the use of privateering. Come October the 9th of 1775, the Massachusetts General Court appointed a committee to help oversee the practice of privateering go into place. Elbridge Jerry would be the man in charge of the bill drafting committee. And was Elbridge Jerry from Marblehead, Massachusetts? Yes. It just so happens, folks, that Marblehead was a prosperous fishing community and Marblehead is not far from Salem, being uh, north of Boston. Secondly, uh, Elbridge Jerry's family owned a fleet of ships that were greatly involved in the coastal and transatlantic trade. And Elbridge Jerry himself knew how deeply impacted his state's economy became following the aftermath of Parliament's enacting the 1774 Intolerable Acts. 
the bill uh, for which uh, Elbridge Jerry oversaw get proposed to becoming uh, enacted into law by the general court come November 1st of 1775 uh, is the following and it's going to be a long one but I uh, but it's in quotes but let's um let's find out the uh, title of this uh, legislation this is a big stepping stone folks so here we go an act and resolve for encouraging the fixing out of armed vessels to defend the sea coast of America and for erecting a court to try and condemn all vessels that shall be found infesting the same. Quite a lengthy um, title uh, for an act, but it does have purpose, folks. We're still under um, Parliament's uh control or I mean we're still under the uh, control of the uh, crown and parliament rather I should say so but is it fair to say that Massachusetts is trying to take a bold step and perhaps wanting to break away from England I think so given that, that this bill is grand not just for, for to the confines of the colonies but also maybe it could be a stepping stone towards uh, getting the moderate faction in Philadelphia to realize that, well, maybe we do need to consider independence, especially if the Crown and Parliament, given their practices of impressment, existing uh, practices of impressment have resulted in the capture of American uh, crewmen, you know, one, another one of Jefferson's grievances in the Declaration of Independence that he included were that uh, he has ravaged our coasts, plundered our seas. Well, when I think of ravaging the coasts, we're not talking about vandalizing so much people's towns or uh, buildings or homes, but by ravaging the coasts, it could be that, uh, that the Crown and Parliament have uh, disrupted economic livelihoods, most notably the... Uh, the uh, Boston Port Act, which closed uh, the port of Boston, which um, destroyed thousands of people's um, economic livelihoods. So, this. Uh, so here, let's uh, let's talk about um, a, another dilemma right here. There is a there is a thing called international law. I don't know if it was really titled as international law in 1775. But we can say this much. International law held, held the following, that only a sovereign nation, okay, and when I think of a sovereign nation, how about England, the mother country? So international law held only a sovereign nation, in this case being England, could authorize letters of marquee. That is, letters of, you know, the letters of approval that would allow her subjects to uh, attack an enemy ship that has um, threatened uh, other ships nearby or has uh, shown signs of aggression to where uh, the ship or ships at, at stake could be in harm's way and, and, need, um, and need attention to where the problem could go away. Well, the thing is, is that, yes, that only a sovereign nation being England can uh, authorize the letters of Marquis. But should Massachusetts authorize privateering, then Massachusetts is going to have to declare its own sovereignty. 
And by declaring its own sovereignty, what is Massachusetts going to have to do, folks? It's going to have to forego, the colony of Massachusetts will have to forego all of her ties to England. It's going to be, have to be its own entity. It may not even be able to have any kind of um, ties with the other uh, neighboring uh, colonies. So November of 1775 saw Massachusetts and the other 12 colonies not ready to fully sever. However, Massachusetts, like her other sister colonies, they weren't taking their anger out towards Britain's people. Nor were they even taking their anger out on King George III, which to me was a little bit of a shocker. But the anger that the people of Massachusetts are, um, are demonstrating, especially for men like Elbridge Gerry and other Massachusetts leaders, say, like, you know, Mr. John Adams, the problem lied, and even uh, Mr. John Hancock as well, the problem lied with the uh, Prime Minister of England at the time. His name was Lord North. He had put Britain in the direction leaning towards war, primarily due to allowing the Royal Navy to go unchecked, and that is unchecked measures resulting in their uh, impressing of fellow uh, subjects along the waters whom hadn't started any troubles. Lord, Lord North's administration um, was targeted simply for taking inaction to curtail the existing uh, acts of impressment along the um, waters. What did the privateering legislation enacted by Massachusetts allow? Well, for starters, the law gave letters of marquee to individuals to build and operate vessels at their own expense. Secondly, privateersmen were restricted to attacking those British vessels whom assaulted American ships, including an invasion of any part of America, along with going after British ships supplying greater extent of British fleet as well as army. To ensure there would be no violations, ship owners had to post a $5,000 bond in the event a privateer and her crew on board the vessel violated uh, restrictions. If, the, if a violation or violations occurred, it would result in a forfeiture. Forfeiture being, you know, the uh, giving up or surrendering a vessel altogether. The law itself also called for a creation of vice, admiral, vice admiralty courts among multiple ports in the Massachusetts colony. Multiple ports besides Boston, you've got Marblehead, Salem, Gloucester, Wakefield, Newburyport, um, Methuen, uh, just to name a few. These um, multiple ports uh, where vice admiralty courts would get established would um, get power. They would give the uh, courts the power to, de to decide whether vessels brought in by privateers and their crew were valid. All valid prizes would lead to their um, being sold at public auctions, and the proceeds would have to be divided up evenly between the vessels, officers, and crew. It's, it's one thing to be able to go out and engage in um, privateering, but there have to be rules, and rightfully so. And by doing this, maybe it's uh, Massachusetts's way of also trying to modify existing uh, tensions to where you know, if the if the opposition does not harm us, then we we're not going to attack. But if we are um, attacked, 
then yes, the opposition's going to have to um, have to feel the effects of what we will um, of what we will go about bringing. John Adams expressed a great joy when learning about the uh, about America's um, first official uh, force uh, becoming uh, established, that is for privateering. Adams had expressed uh, great concerns for Massachusetts's um, peoples, uh, most notably those who worked in the whaling industry, who were uh, who were uh, mariners, uh, seamen, to those who worked in the cod fishing industry. He didn't want to see any of these people. Um, he didn't want to see their economic livelihoods be taken from them without any proper or formal uh, measure of consent. You know, it's one thing. <laughs> for someone to lose their job, but isn't it fair to say that even when Parliament enacted the um, the Boston Port Act of 1774 in the aftermath of, um, of what happened uh, on December 16th of 1773 with the Boston Tea Party, isn't that fair to say that when Parliament enacted the uh, Boston Port Act that they had not um, provided uh, proper means of uh, consent to the people of Boston? Perhaps not. You know, even John Adams himself said, you know, it's one thing to tax an Englishman, but if you're going to tax an Englishman, you must you must get his consent. It might be fair to say that, if, you know, it's one thing to close the port of Boston, but you better get the people's consent. But I think it's fair to say that Parliament probably knew by that time that, that they knew that uh, they would be met with fierce hostilities uh, just trying to ask for consent. Now, the first letter of Marquis in Massachusetts came about on December the 7th of 1775 when a, a vessel by the name of the Boston Revenge officially became a privateer. Others followed not long afterwards. Um, whom commanded uh, the privateer known as the Washington? How about a 28-year-old by the name of o Often Boardman? who was a native of Newbury, but come 1764, uh, Newbury became Newburyport. Often Boardman hailed from a long line of mariners in his family. The Washington was a small vessel at 40 tons, crewed by uh, 40 men, armed with nine cannons and 10 smaller uh, swivel guns. January 15th of 1776, Plum Island, which is where the Washington was stationed, Captain Boardman spotted a vessel in nearby proximity to where the Washington chased down the British brig Suki without any shots being fired. Suki surrendered immediately after being chased down to the point where she could no longer to where she simply just couldn't escape. Suki surrendered and was taken back to Newburyport. She had departed 10 weeks earlier from Cork, Ireland where her cargoes <laughs> comprised of supplies for British troops ranging from 18,000 pounds of top-of-the-line beef. And think about it, folks. If you were eating beef back then, um, you were eating well. Not everybody had access to beef. It would be fair to say that the uh, upper middle class and the gentry were the ones who, were, um, who, had fine, who could have access to some of the most premier cuts of uh, meat, most notably that of uh, roast beef. So not only was it top-of-the-line beef, but how about 18,000 pounds of butter to 700 gallons of claret, red wine. 
to be able to have this kind of access, folks, to not only just the food and wine, we're not talking about having formal regalias night in and night out, but this would definitely um, help um, not only the uh, people of Boston, but it might also help um, a greater cause because even after Bunker Hill, many in Massachusetts knew that there was no going back. Uh, did Massachusetts's radical actions inspire other colonies to take up similar ones regarding privateering? Yes, January of 1776 saw New Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire's legislature, enact its own privateering um, laws, followed two months later by Rhode Island. John Adams uh, came to regard the legislation that was passed on November the 1st of 1775 as being something of hallmark importance. Hallmark being another word for significant. For John Adams, um, maybe it's fair to say that if one colony could stand up and defend their vessels along open waters, then other colonies could feel compelled to do the same. Given, prime, given largely in part because Prime Minister Lord North had turned a blind eye per his subjects below, 3,000 miles across the ocean, the 13 colonies. Is it fair to say that maybe Lord North really wasn't looking after the colonies? He wants order, probably in the same way that King George III and Parliament would like some form of better restored order, but it seems as though Lord North is really only concerned about his needs and that of the British Royal Navy's needs. And one of those needs, folks, is impressment. And, and in his eyes, impressment isn't just so much about capturing enemy sailors, even if it means the subjects below you whom you govern, but it also is his way of, of saying that, hey, look, the Royal Navy is the mightiest navy in the world, and even her subjects are not immune to uh, being safe along the high waters. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment. I look forward to being back on the air next time. I certainly hope to be back on the air again here soon, but if for some reason I'm not, it's uh, because I'll be on assignment. But like I said, I will try to get back on the air uh, before going on assignment. Uh, but, when I, but when I am on the air again next, we will be discussing uh, what's called expanding the fight at sea. That should be uh, of uh, great relevance right there. So we have just, it's fair to say that we have emerged from the 101 aspect by taking one small step, but it's a large step for mankind in terms of now colonial America establishing not only a, a system of privateering, but Massachusetts leading the way. So we'll learn in the next podcast segment just how much bigger the overall um, expansion of this fight uh, goes. Well, thank you for your time as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Uh, take care for now, and uh, wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. <music>